K-A-L-W. Our people have no more fear of anyone, no more fear of anything. We are not afraid to go to jail. We are not afraid to give our very life itself. Malcolm X was often called a polarizing figure, but to one Egyptian diplomat, he was a friend. Malcolm was interested in finding answers to questions that occupied his mind. The friendship that helped lead to the late leader's spiritual and political transformation. Then we'll hear the story of one man and the powerful draw of Islam in prison. Malcolm X said it himself. He said, there is no audience that is more primed to hear the message of Islam than the black man in prison. The spiritual journey of a black icon. I'm Hanat Baba, and this is Cross Currents. Today marks 59 years since the assassination of the man known as Malcolm X. He's most widely associated with his work in Harlem, but the Bay Area mattered to him. He gave speeches in San Francisco, Oakland, and at UC Berkeley. Our people have no more fear of anyone, no more fear of anything. We are not afraid to go to jail. We are not afraid to give our very life itself. And we're not afraid to take the lives of those who try to take our lives. We believe in a fair exchange. We believe in a fair exchange, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a head for a head, and a life for a life. If this is the price of freedom, we won't hesitate to pay the price. And the Bay Area is where he cemented an important friendship with Egyptian diplomat Tahseen Bashir. As KALW's news editor Sunni Khalid tells us, for Bashir, Malcolm X was the rare leader who had more questions than answers. I lived in Egypt for three years, when I was the Cairo bureau chief for NPR. I interviewed Tassin Bashir several times, and we became good friends. My last interview with him took place in Cairo in November 2001. In 1956, Tassin was working at the United Nations and living in Harlem, then the thriving cultural and political capital of Black America. He was speaking to several African-American groups, trying to build support for the Egyptian revolution. At one gathering, Tassin met Malcolm X, then the national representative for the militant Nation of Islam. And Malcolm came, introduced himself, and then he contacted me to come and to talk about Egypt, the Swiss Canal, and the attack on Egypt. The speech was to be given at the Nation of Islam's Temple Number no. 7 in Harlem, where Malcolm was minister. And he asked me, how many people you want to attend? I said, I don't care. I mean, it depends on your group. He said, no, I can get you 5,000, 6,000. And I went to the mosque and I started giving my speech, very heart rendering speech. And uh, the people will answer or interrupt by saying, that's right, that's right. That's right, that's right. The two men began to meet privately at Tassin's nearby apartment. And he never told me beforehand when he's coming. All I get is two dark fellows knocking on my door and standing by the door in diagonally. 
and they say, are you here? I said, yes. And said, well, Brother Malcolm wants to see. I said, fine. When does he want to come? And usually the answer right now, he's downstairs with other guards in the car. He comes out, but everybody leaves us and we talk, and then he leaves. Tosin and Malcolm became friends. Initially, their discussions were about Malcolm telling him about the Nation of Islam. The movement was both respected and feared for its advocacy of black nationalism and its denunciation of, quote, blonde-haired, blue-eyed devils, unquote. He also taught me a lot about the movement of Elijah Muhammad. And of course, a lot of it was news to me, that creation of a different Islam. It has some aspects remotely related to Islam, but in essence, it was a black movement against the whites. Soon, their discussions began to deal with the differences between traditional Islam and the version preached by Elijah Muhammad, the self-styled messenger of the Nation of Islam. And he was struggling with the question that a lot of what Elijah had taught is not the traditional Sunni Islam, but some version that claims to be Islam. Tassin said that Malcolm privately started questioning the direction of the Nation of Islam several years before he left the movement. But Malcolm was interested in finding answers to questions that occupied his mind. In 1961, Tassin moved to San Francisco, where he served as Consul General of the Egyptian Consulate. Meanwhile, Malcolm was crisscrossing the country, speaking at many of the nation's mosques. In October 1963, Malcolm came to the Bay Area to speak before an audience of 6,000 people on the campus of the University of California, Berkeley. Mr. Moderator, students and faculty here at the University of California, brothers and sisters, friends and enemies, Recently, the state of California, the Supreme Court here, denied Negro inmates who had become converted to the religion of Islam while serving time in these penal institutions of this state, denied them the right to receive qualified Muslim religious instructors from the outside on the ground that the Muslims who follow the Honorable Elijah Muhammad are not an authentic religious group. At the same time, the state's esteemed body of educators here at the University of California barred me from speaking on this campus on the grounds that we do represent an authentic religious group. He also visited Tassin, who told me they continued to meet privately whenever Malcolm came to the Bay Area. And he used to come and visit me in San Francisco. And I remember it well because I was in the consulate that my mother was at home, and suddenly there was a knock on my door, not on the downstairs bell, and there were two dark faces dressed in dark charcoal, and she was scared a little bit, and she told them yes. She doesn't know English well, but apparently they told her, his brother Tahsin there. She called me at the embassy and said, some people want to see you here. And it was Malcolm who came to see me. So we became friends and we talked a lot about black Americans. I was interested in the movement. 
And at that time, very few Egyptians knew anything about black Americans. After Malcolm broke with the Nation of Islam in March 1964, he founded the Organization for Afro-American Unity, a secular pan-Africanist group. He also made his obligatory pilgrimage to Mecca in Saudi Arabia, a trip Tassin helped arrange. Malcolm set his sights on linking up with the leaders of the newly independent African and Middle Eastern nations. Foremost among them was Egypt's President Gamal Abdel Nasser. Tassin helped broker the meeting. So I suggested to people around Nasser that this leader should be exposed to what Islam is. And Malcolm came to Egypt. I wasn't then in Egypt and went and visited Mecca and Medina and returned back to Egypt. And I met him after his return from Mecca and Medina. Malcolm met with Nasser for an hour and a half. He would later tell his eldest brother that when he met Nasser, he walked into his office and the Egyptian leader rose from behind his desk and embraced him warmly and, to his surprise, treated him like a peer. From what I gathered from Malcolm, that it was a very positive meeting, and they came out of it satisfied. Malcolm X spent five months overseas, visiting more than a dozen countries, meeting with political leaders across Africa and the Middle East. His goal, bringing the United States, which was being rocked by racial turmoil, to trial before the United Nations on charges of genocide. He emerged from his travels no longer as a black separatist leader, but a pan-Africanist, and he started using his Muslim name, el Haj Malik El-Shabazz, as a devout follower of traditional Islam. But back in the United States, the Nation of Islam, plagued by high-level corruption, was splintering. Shortly before he broke with the movement, Malcolm began to receive death threats and public denunciations from leaders in the movement. On a barge on the Nile River in late July 1964, Tassin City spoke alone with Malcolm, who was deep in thought about what he would say when he returned to the U.S. He was very pensiful on the issue of not to go and declare any attacks on Elijah Muhammad's interpretation of Islam. And I told him that teaching for Islam would take a long time in a gradual way. And while the issue of color should be de-emphasized by showing the multicolor of Muslims, it should not be done in a shocking way. During what would be their last meeting, Tassin cautioned his friend to tread carefully. I advised Malcolm not to go and say that publicly when he goes back to America, because this will be an attack on Elijah. It might split the movement, and many in it, in the leadership, will think that he's betraying them. And I even warned him that, don't do that, Malcolm, they might kill you. But don't challenge Elijah in his kingdom, his flock. Those words turned out to be prophetic. Six months later, Malcolm X was assassinated at New York's Audubon Ballroom. 
He was just 39. Tassin said he was in Cairo when he heard the news about his friend. I was shocked, but I knew that it was going to happen if Malcolm tried to undermine the leadership of uh, Elad. Three members of the Nation of Islam were initially convicted of the murder, although two were subsequently exonerated after decades in prison. Tassin would go on to serve in several diplomatic posts with the Egyptian government before becoming a public intellectual. Seven months after our interview, Tassin Bashir died after a long illness. He was 76. In San Francisco, I'm Sunni Khalid for Cross Currents. That was Tahseen Bashir speaking with KLW's Sunni Khalid. Historical consultant Paul Lee, a visiting scholar at the Department of African American Studies at UC Berkeley, contributed to this story. You're listening to Cross Currents from KALW News. I'm Hanat Baba. As we just heard, Malcolm X was an influential figure in the Nation of Islam. Malcolm X became Muslim in prison. And that brings us to our next piece, a story from the series Becoming Muslim from KLW's project, The Spiritual Edge. In this story, I meet Wendell Elamine James, a Black Muslim man who also converted to the religion in prison. In this piece, we learn that the Black Muslim story in America is incomplete if we don't talk about American prisons. Our guide for the subject is Spirit. He's a scholar, he goes by one name, and he's a professor at Thurgood Marshall School of Law at Texas Southern University, author of American Prisons, a critical primer on culture and conversion to Islam. Malcolm X said it himself. He said there is no audience that is more primed to hear the message of Islam than the black man in prison. The first year that I was in prison didn't rehabilitate me in any way, shape, or form. The prisons aren't set up to rehabilitate Negroes. And it happens to be that starting in the 70s, we started on this turn to mass incarceration. And so, you know, large groups of African-American men. And so they're literally a captive audience for the message. 30 to 40,000 prison inmates convert to Islam every year, according to Spirit. He argues that the Black Muslim story can't be told without looking at what's happened in American prisons. And that's what we're talking about today, the experience of Black men who convert to Islam in prison. Today we're going to meet one, Wendell Elamine James. His story starts in 1960s San Francisco. It was a time of cultural revolution, radical ideas. And for the city's Black communities, it was also a time when the jazz scene flourished in the Fillmore District, known as the Harlem of the West. As a kid of just 11 or 12, Wendell James saw a lot on the city streets. The, the players, the pimps, the, all kind of different stuff in San Francisco. It's, you had the, the drugs, you had the, the, the houses, you had the, the clubs, it was cars, lights. I just saw a lot of stuff. 
Wendell never learned how to read. He was classified special ed for a speech impediment. As a teen, he would hang out in the neighborhood, in the city on Saturdays, church on Sundays. And then an unexpected turn of events, his girlfriend got pregnant. So I was forced to get married at 18 years old and become responsible. You be responsible and you get a job and you make sure this girl is taken care of. Okay, right. And you got me a job in the shipyard at a young age. But then I became a part of the street as well. And uh, I had friends that were selling marijuana, weed. He started dealing. He needed money to keep a house and support his new family. But then... Graduated to something else, to the cocaine and heroin. Then I became a dope dealer in San Francisco. This was also a time of activism and social change. The height of the free speech movement in Berkeley, the Black Panthers in Oakland. Plus, the Nation of Islam had a strong presence in the lives of Black people in the Bay Area. Wendell's older brother was a member. And I used to go to the mess with him, the temple with him. And I, I used to like it because the way that they uh, marched and their, their drills, and it was, yeah, it was structured. I loved it. <laughs> I loved it, you know. Wendell admired the nation, but he was young, and as a teen, he now had this huge responsibility of caring for a family before the age of 20. He dealt drugs for years, and the money was rolling in. But by the late 70s, he wasn't just dealing heroin and cocaine, he was using, too. Came up to the point where I had a dealer's habit. My wife and I stayed together about five years being young, five years. And uh, then she got addicted to drugs mm. off my youth. Yeah, I got arrested in San Jose, and I did six months in the county jail. That was Wendell's first involvement with incarceration. But after he left, he went right back to his old drug life on the outside. It was the same for a lot of people. At the time, recidivism rates were notoriously high. And in 1987, he was charged with another crime, a much more serious crime, first-degree murder. I was scared to death. Wendell maintains his innocence to this day, but he was convicted and sent to prison for 27 years. He remembers when he was awaiting his sentence in county jail, the men inside with him gave him a reality check about what would come next. And I went into a, a, a holding tank with the people that were older than I was, OGs, so to speak, and they would tell me, youngster, you're going to prison. <laughs> you can charge with murder. You're going to prison, man. You know, because a lot of OGs, OGs had been to prison, and they at that time it was a war going on in prison. You know, blacks and whites and Mexicans they was viewing real bad, and people were dying every day. You know, so they said you going old Folsom. If you go, you going old Folsom, and that's where it's really bad, man. Whoa. This was the height of Ronald Reagan's war on drugs in the 1980s. Say yes to your life. And when it comes to drugs and alcohol, just say no. That led to prison populations swelling. A 1985 report on violence at Folsom State Prison counted 120 stabbings in just six months that year. A prison guard was killed the same year Wendell was going in. And so the older men Wendell was getting advice from, they had a big tip for him. It's that when you go to prison, you go to prison and hang out with the Muslims. 
said, you be okay, hang up to Muslims, you'll be okay. I said, what, what you mean by that? He said, nothing will happen to the Muslims. Said, what you mean by that? He said, Muslims don't play. He said, you hang out with the Muslims, you'll be straight. By the time Wendell went to prison in the late 1980s, there were a number of different Black Muslim groups on the inside, and they were all reaching out to incarcerated men more than ever. The Muslim groups are the most sophisticated and organized outreach effort groups in prison that the prison's ever known. Spirit, the scholar who studies Islam in prison, says, like it was for Malcolm X, prison for many is a time of personal reflection. For many, you've got to realize it's the first time they've ever been able to sit down and concentrate on something away from the chaos of the hood and the streets and all of that, right? So there, there is that. And we have to remember, in prison, it's traumatic. It's a traumatic experience. And there's other research that suggests that trauma, the trauma of having to go to prison and then finally getting there and having to live that experience these are precursors to conversion as well. So I get there, and the first day I get there, I see somebody get killed the first day I get there. The first day I see somebody get killed. That day, his new cellmate gave him different advice from what he heard from those county jail men. This man said, you got to be part of the war happening in prison. You have to pick a side and be loyal to it. He said, if you're going to survive, you got to be part of this, man. If you don't, if you don't want any part of this, you're going to die. Wendell had a choice to make, a choice that could mean the difference between life and death. Should he listen to this man inside prison and get involved with the gangs or take the advice from the men he met in county jail? He was new, he was conflicted with mixed messages, but he knew he had to choose. And in that moment, he decided. I said, where, where, the, where the Muslims hang out? He said, the Muslims? He said, what, what, what religion are you? I said, I'm, I'm a Christian. I said, what do you want to hang with the Muslims for? I said, I want to see what, what, what they're about. Someone pointed Wendell to where the Muslims hung out, the multi-faith chapel. So I went over there and I went inside, and it was like, wow, this is cool. What one, did you see? I saw the brothers all together. They had one section where brothers learned their prayer. They had one section where the brothers learned Arabic. And one pre- section where they got a, a whiteboard where they, they, they learn stuff on the black on the whiteboard and they do, it was like it was cool. It was quiet. Out, out there was the yard, a lot of noise. Inside it was quiet, everybody respectful. One of the men introduced him to the others, and he felt that familiar draw he experienced as a kid going with his brother to the nation temple. You know, they glow. They just, it's a different look. It looked look different from a pr- people in prison. You got that shine. It's, you're serious about what you're doing. You know, you're being educated, you're being transformed. Everything you're doing is different. And that protection the old G's told him about? That first day, he stayed in the chapel as long as he could. And when it was time to leave, the Muslim men walked him back to his cell. In the morning, someone would be there to get him. He felt safe. He felt he was with productive people. He listened as they read from the Quran. He watched their prayers. And when Ramadan came along, he fasted with them. My first fast... I wasn't Muslim then, okay? But to see that how they fast, that you don't eat, uh, you don't drink, you don't do nothing, no swearing, no cursing, no nothing. 
Wendell was into all of that. Spirit says these feelings are part of the reason why Islam is such a powerful draw for men like him in prison. The strong sense of connection, the discipline, and he says there are some other reasons too. Many people just look at their existential situation and associate that with Christianity, right? That it, this was a you know Christian country, these were Christians who did this to me, and I'm sitting in prison because of this system that you know, basically Christianity has authorized. So there is that sense that by by being Muslim, you are joining something that has had a glorious past of standing up to Christianity, right? Of having glorious victories. And so there is this sense that um, Christianity is something to get away from, something to have a foil against. And Islam can be that for some people. Spirit says many Black American Muslims see themselves as reverts rather than converts, going back to the past and reclaiming powerful lost Muslim identities linked to the history of Islam in Africa and even Spain. That was an excerpt from the series Becoming Muslim from KALW's project The Spiritual Edge. It first aired in 2021. You can find the whole story at KALW.org slash crosscurrents. Tune in tomorrow morning at 11. We'll explore the tight-knit community of lowriders in San Jose. What a lot of people don't understand these days is the expression that comes out of lowriding. People just look at it like you're just driving a piece of junk on the streets. But to us, it's like a canvas on wheels. Hydraulic lifts, custom cars, and socio-political implications. Tomorrow morning at 11. Today's Cross Currents team includes Pat McMahon, Molly Blair Salyer, James Rollins, Ganadi Joe Johnson, Victor Tense, Shirin Adil, Lisa Morehouse, Angela Johnston, Marissa Ortega-Welch, and Ben Trefney. Our opening theme music is by the John Santos Quintet as interpreted by Daoud Anthony. For Cross Currents, I'm Hannah Baba. Quiero volver a besar tus labios rojos Como no acordarme de ti De qué manera olvidarte Si todo me recuerda a ti